welcome to a special edition of the Bible in the News, brought to you as Russia wages war in Georgia. This week we bring you a public presentation given hours ago by Paul Billington, editor of the Bible magazine, on the current crisis in Georgia. Due to the length of the presentation, this edition of the Bible in the News will be available in audio only. Here is Paul Billington. The events of the past few days, almost a week now, the military action of Russia in Georgia is of immense significance, not only for that region, but also for the whole of Europe, for the Middle East, and indeed for the whole of the world. As many observers have pointed out, Russia's action sets a precedent. Relations between Russia and Georgia have been frosty for several years now, but so has Russia's association with the Ukraine and other former Soviet satellite countries. The message is very clear. Would anybody else like to poke Russia in the eye? And I think that message is coming across very strongly at the present time. No doubt we have all read the news headlines. And I want to show you, just share one or two of them with you. For example, the Daily Telegraph. Georgia. Russia targets key oil pipeline with over 50 missiles. The New York Times. Russia steps up its push. West faces tough choices. The Daily Telegraph. Georgia. Vladimir Putin sends emphatic message of global importance. The Jerusalem Post. Bear claw on the trigger. The BBC. US warning to Russia over Georgia. And the response, also from the BBC, another headline, Western words fall on deaf Russian ears. And so we have seen the moves as Russia has gone into this tiny country of Georgia, and particularly the, the two areas, the two disputed areas of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. It's reported that the country has been cut in half. That's what they're telling us. And in today's newspapers, one from Greece that announces Pax Russia. And the Guardian out of the UK tells us that surrender or else Russia tells Georgia. And another headline, the Wall Street Journal Moscow reasserts itself in former Soviet Empire. And the little subheading there, if you can quite read it underneath, Russia flexes muscles in fight with Georgia, pitting East versus West. But that headline was in the newspaper two years ago. That headline was in the Washington Post in 2006. So... Russia, it is suggested, is building the old Soviet empire. That's one thing. But indications are that Russia's ambition will not end there. All Europe is now vulnerable to the bear's aggressive growl because largely of oil and of gas. This was a cartoon in The, in the Economist some time ago. <coughs> So with their paws on the oil and the gas taps, few are in a position, are they not, to bait the Russian bear. This was the position in 2006 that we're looking at on the screen now. And few have forgotten the lesson in Europe when the energy was switched off right in the middle of winter. And in case you didn't know, Winter's on the horizon again. It won't be long before it's here. 
So we need to step back a little bit now. I was brought up with a Europe that looked like that. Divided right down the middle with what was called the Iron Curtain. This was Europe for over 40 years after Russia seized half of Europe following World War II. And it was, comparatively, a stable situation. They called it the Cold War. And uh, there were skirmishes from time to time. Uh, but it all fell apart. And in November 1989, the Iron Curtain came down. That's 19 years ago. And Russia was, in a sense, turned back, we might say. And we use those words advisedly. Atheistic communism was no more. It was done away. The West had won the Cold War. But who's going to lead the new Europe? See what we have on the screen there? Rome healed the breach with Russia in 1989 and communism in Russia collapsed in 1991, paving the way for a united Europe from the Atlantic to the Ural Mountains. But who is going to lead this new Europe? The Europeans didn't want the United States to control them. But it is the Bible, friends. It is the Bible that tells us what it is that will come to pass. And so I direct your attention to that passage of scripture that we had read by way of introduction this evening. That is the, the 38th chapter of Ezekiel, where we read these words. Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Here is the leader of a vast alliance. In scripture he's referred to as Gog. The prophecy continues, Persia, Ethiopia and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Goma and all his bands, the house of Tagama of the north quarters and all his bands, and many people with thee. Another translation renders that passage a little differently. Uh, this is taken from the American uh, Standard Version. The word of Jehovah came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face towards Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, and that's the ancient name for Russia, as several scholars can tell us, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord Jehovah, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Some of us these days use a version called the New King James Version, and that renders it in a similar fashion. I'll read it to you. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. And that prophecy goes on in verse 4 to say this, I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, all of thine army, horses and horsemen, so you can see that there is, as it were, an arresting of Gog's progress. A turning back. And then he is brought forth with all his military might, as it goes on to describe in those uh, words that follow there in verse 4. But notice the way this prophecy is constructed. And if you'd like to look at your Bible and, and, and note this for yourself, that... It follows that after that turning back, consequent after that turning back, Persia, Ethiopia and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Do you see how that there is now an expansion? There is a <coughs> much larger alliance that is now being formed. 
consisting of Persia, which of course many of you will know is Iran, Ethiopia, Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Goma and all his bands, the house of Tagama of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. So it seems that there is, first, a turning back of this power. Then a military revival, we will say. I will bring thee forth with all thy army, and so on. And then thirdly, the formation of a confederacy, a multinational force, which includes, as we said, uh, Iran. Now, what countries are involved? Well, we drew this map up to show the various countries with their Bible names. Now, this map, of course, is based upon the historians of ancient times, and uh, that is a study in itself. Uh, the historians that we would use would be people like Josephus, who wrote at about the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, Herodotus, who wrote about 100 years just after Ezekiel himself, and there are others like Strabo and others. All provides us with this picture when we put it all together and we see uh, the events that are taking place uh, before us today. And we can see the relevance of it. The prophecy goes on to talk about this place called Goma. Goma includes Western Europe. Here are two references. It is a Japhetic nation, and uh, one can compare all these nations that you see in Ezekiel 38, and you find them in one other place in the Bible. And that other place is Genesis chapter 10. They are there back in Genesis chapter 10. And Young's Concordance, for example, tells us this about Goma. He says he was the progenitor of the Cimmerians, the Cimbri, and other branches of the Celtic family, as well as the modern Gale and Cymru. They settled on the north of the Black Sea and then spread themselves southward and westward to the extremities of Europe. In fact, Josephus shows in his history how that they went from north of the Black Sea there, from that area, more or less uh, Turkey and, and around the Black Sea there, and how, he's, how they spread themselves right across Europe as far as, he says, Cadiz in Spain. So they went right as far as the Atlantic. The Encyclopedia Britannica. The Celts continually moved westward. The Belgi, who were Kimbrick in origin, had spread across the Rhine and given their name to all northern France and Belgium. So you can see Western Europe is being involved in what these names are telling us in Ezekiel chapter 38. So according to this prophecy, we could expect then that Gog, the prince or leader or ruler of Russia, is to gain control of all Europe and much more besides. It's quite a thought. As today we look at a situation based upon this prophecy. And it's interesting to see young people in Russia idolizing their, their leader, Vladimir Putin. They call it the Putin generation. And there's a group called the Nashi movement. And they are very prominent in the Soviet, in, the, in, the, in, in Russia today. But who or what is Gog? We have to do a little careful study here. We have to do a little thinking to, uh, to, to trace this out. And I've uh, compiled some information here, which I've put on the screen. Uh, and, and, and this is what we can glean from uh, the various sources that uh, will be mentioned here. For example, Young's Concordance says that the name Gog means high or mountain. The Gesenius' lexicon says that it's a proper name of the prince of the land of Magog, Ezekiel chapter 38, also of the Rossi, that's Rosh, Moscai and Tabarini, who is to come with great forces from the extreme north, Ezekiel 38 verse 15, after the exile, that is to say after the Jewish exile, after the return in other words, 38 verses 8 and 12. And he's going to come to invade the Holy Land and to perish there. 
he says. The Companion Bible says of this name Gog that it means all that is powerful, gigantic and proud. If we compare the name with what we find in Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 24 and verse 7, if you have access to or can find a copy of the Septuagint version, that's an old Greek translation which was put together oh, about three or four hundred years before Christ. But it translates the name Agog, Agag in Numbers 24 verse 7 as Gog. The Hebrew, it says, has the name High, warlike. And it's also used in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 9. The name has been linked with Og, king of Bashan. Numbers 21, verse 33. Now when we look at all that and put it all together, you get the general picture. And from all those bits of information, you put it together and you see that it is talking about one who is exalted, one who is lifted up, someone who is very high, uh, a very prominent uh, leader, you would say, uh, this Gog, as far as this uh, group of nations is concerned. And as you go through scripture, you can see how that the idea is mirrored in very many other places. For example, when you think of the famous story of David and Goliath, you will see an echo, as it were, of this Ezekiel's Gog. Goliath, you will remember was a huge giant. And little David comes along, and his name, by the way, means beloved. Little David comes along, and he takes a little stone, and he slings it, and he hits Goliath, the giant, right in the head. Did you know the Hebrew word for head is rosh? Exactly the same as what we find in Ezekiel chapter 38 that we've been talking about, the Prince of Rosh. So there's one little echo, and there's more one could say about that. It connects with a great image that we find in Daniel chapter 2. Again, a huge statue, a metallic statue, which is destroyed by a little stone. Same idea. And you see these, these, these ideas being mirrored and reflected in various other prophecies. It connects with one who exalts himself. We read of him in Isaiah chapter 14 by the name of Lucifer, the day star, the son of the morning. And his end, says that chapter, is to perish upon the mountains of Israel exactly the same as Gog you find in Ezekiel chapter 38. Then there is the king, in Daniel chapter 11 verse 36. The second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, where we read of one who exalts himself above all. And then of course there is a connection with Babylon the Great, because the great image of Daniel chapter 2 is a Babylonian image fundamentally. So what we're introduced to here then is a colossus of human power exalting itself against Israel and Israel's God. It's a latter day Assyrian power. And when we look at Russia today, sometimes these things are, sorry I should have hit that before for you. When we look at Russia today, we see this authoritarian regime that is renewing itself. This was an, a, a cartoon out of The Economist again some time ago and here, there is Putin uh, saying how that Yeltsin had, had made the authoritarian Russia to pass off the scene. He says, but don't worry, we're building a better one. And so there he, there he is. The cartoon in The Economist depicts Vladimir Putin erecting a new authoritarian Russia a platform for the autocrat of all Russia and Europe. And that cartoon was put together a couple of years ago now. It wasn't put together this week in view of these events. So the, these things have been before people's minds for some time. 
And not only has Bible prophecy foretold these things, but we know that many have looked for these things uh, that we are now seeing. For example, I'd like to direct your attention to a book written, published rather, in 1862. It was written by a man by the name of Robert Roberts. And the title of the book was Christendom Astray. And in there, and you'd have to find an edition that went before 1950, because it was scrubbed after 1950 for some strange reason. But any earlier one, you would find these words by Robert Roberts. He says that the supremacy of Russia is foretold. She is to vanquish many countries and hold a protectorate over them, as indicated by the words, Be thou a guard unto them. Thus countries include all the nations of the continent. He means the continent of Europe. Goma and all his bands, the house of Togama of the north quarters, will be found, on reference to ancient geography, to embrace nearly every country in Europe. And, in addition to these, there are Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, showing that, at the time, Russia will have attained to something like universal dominion. We can go back further than that. This is the front cover of a book published in 1854, and the title is rather startling. It is Anatolia, which is a a Greek uh, word pointing to the east. Russia triumphant and Europe chained. And the inside title page gives you more detail than that. Has a title page inside. And I've typed out on the the one side so that it's made more readable uh, the, the wording, although I did have one type mistake, which I'll point out. So, the full title of this book then read, Anatolia, or Russia Triumphant and Europe Chained, being an exposition of prophecy showing the inevitable fall of the French and Ottoman, that's Turkish empires, the occupation of Egypt and the Holy Land by the British, it should read, the formation of a Russian Latin or Greek confederacy, his invasion and conquest of Egypt, Palestine and Jerusalem, its destruction on the mountains of Israel, the long-expected deliverance of the Jews by the Messiah, his subjugation of the world through their agency, that's through the agency of the Jewish people, and consequent establishment of the kingdom of Israel. Now there is an awful lot there that was on this uh, uh, title page inside. An incredible prediction made way back in 1854. That's 154 years ago. Then we look at the introductory remarks in that book. And John Thomas, the writer of that book, wrote as follows. He says, All the author bespeaks for the following pages is a patient, sober-minded, and candid perusal. He is aware that the title page is an exhibition of startling propositions, very much at variance indeed with the suppositions of those who are considered the most enlightened statesmen and politicians of the day. That Russia should be triumphant with such powers against her as France and England, and today you could say the United States, is amongst the impossibilities of those who put confidence in princes and make flesh their arms. But their thoughts are not the purposes of the Most High, who ruleth in the kingdoms of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. He has decreed that the triumph of Russia over the east and west, previous to its final overthrow. Those are incredible things, predictions, that were made on the basis of a prophecy. Now this book, written in 1854, was later published under a different title less dramatic. It's known to good many people as an exposition of Daniel. And indeed, that's what it is. As you go through the book, you see that it is an explanation of the prophecy of Daniel. I'd like to just highlight a few points that comes out of this prophecy. 
In Daniel chapter 2, there is a well-known prophecy based upon this idea of a metallic image we mentioned a few moments ago. The metallic image is made up of a golden head, silver arms and chest, a brass midriff, and iron legs. And so its meaning is explained in the chapter, verses 38 to 40. You, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. And after you will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. So, fundamentally, you can say that this prophecy predicts four world empires that would take place. But they are all to be broken at the same time, it tells us in the prophecy. And when we put these pieces together and look on a map at Babylon, the empire of the Medes and Persians, the empire of Greece, the empire of Rome, and then as you come down to the feet and toes, the, 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 the European nations that came out of the Roman Empire, you, what you find is that you have exactly the same idea as what you've got in those nations of Ezekiel chapter 38. And to see that, you have to sort of just turn your head on one side, as it were, and turn that map round like that, so that Nebuchadnezzar's image is lying down, and you'll see it takes in all those, all those countries uh, that, are, that are there. It goes on to say, in that prophecy, and it's in verse 41 of Daniel chapter 2, it says, the kingdom shall be divided. And it was. The Roman, or Iron Empire, was divided into east and west. And taking the symbols that are there in the prophecy, we can see how that the Latin part was the west, and the Greek part was the east. So you've got the Roman iron in the west, and you've got the Greek brass, if you like, in the, in the, in the east. Now the Greek part, the eastern part, is really what I'm interested in this evening. It was also known as Byzantium, or the Byzantine Empire. But the Greek section, the brass or Byzantine part, developed further, as we see in history, and it expanded into Russia. This is quite important to our subject this evening. It means we've got to concentrate for a few moments now. This is a quotation from a book called The Russian Chronicles, and it was put together in 1998. And we need a bit of history. So just reading off the screen there, the fall of Constantinople, Constantinople of course uh, is Istanbul today in Turkey, the fall of Constantinople, when it was a, a Greek Byzantine power, it was in 1453, it had radically altered not only the political map, but also the ideological frame of reference of Orthodox Christendom. And notions of Russia as Byzantine spiritual heir became increasingly re uh, 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 prevalent in Moscow. Inseparable from this was the concept of the imperial dignity. In, in, in 1472, Ivan III, sometimes known as Ivan the Terrible, married Sophia Palaiologina, niece of the last emperor of Byzantium, and adopted the Byzantine double-headed eagle as his, as his own emblem. And of course that's the emblem that Russia still uses today. Spiritual and political ideas fused in the concept of Moscow as the third Rome. So the first Rome was Rome, the second Rome was Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, and then that moved once again to Moscow, uh, that is what it's saying here. So the symbol of brass, you see, which was the Greek part of that system, the symbol of brass in Daniel's prophecy becomes both important and interesting. And so we meet it again in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And we want to have a look at that. In Daniel chapter 7, 
we are concerned with a fourth beast. There were four beasts altogether. Uh, there was the lion, there was a bear, there was a leopard, and there was this fourth beast. Now remember that the, that the empire was divided into two halves. An iron part, we could say, and a Greek part. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, we read this about the fourth beast. How that he is dreadful and terrible and strong exceeding. And it had great iron teeth. Notice how that there's that iron element, that Roman element in that beast. It devoured and break in pieces. So he's not a very friendly fellow, is he? And stamped the residue with the feet of it. So he's got feet. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And it goes on even further in verse 19 to say this. Daniel says, I would like to know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse or different from all the others, exceeding dreadful, and whose teeth were of iron, okay, and his nails of brass. Now notice... In this beast, you've got these two aspects. You've got the iron aspect, the teeth, and you've got the brass, which is his nails, or if you like, his claws. And they devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. So here are the elements of the fourth beast, which include brass as this Greek element, or Byzantine element, and it has the Roman, or Latin if you like, element as well. Iron teeth and brass claws. Two elements here in the beast where we can see relate to the two halves of the empire. Now it's very interesting to follow through and see how that these things uh, have to do with our own time as things come along. Even cartoonists use some of these symbols not knowing Exactly what they are using, I would take it. The description of Daniel 7, it devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. It goes on, it was exceeding dreadful. His teeth is of iron, his nails of brass, and he devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. So it's the work of the brass claws, the brazen part, the Greek part, the Byzantine part, if you like the Russian part, it is the work of the brazen claws of the feet to stamp the residue with the feet of it. This is Byzantine. It is Russian. I'd like to compare that with a verse that we read in the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation chapter 13, we find there a picture of all Daniel's beasts, as it were, rolled into one. We sometimes call it a composite beast. Look at the wording in Revelation chapter 13, the first couple of verses. John says, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns. And upon his heads the names of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. There's one of Daniel's beasts. His feet were the feet of a bear. There's another one. His mouth has the mouth of a lion. There's another one. And the dragon gave him his power, his seat and great authority. Here are all Daniel's beasts rolled into one. His brazen clawed feet, however, you'll notice are here described as the feet of a bear. And it's the mission of the Russian bear to stamp the residue, beginning with Europe and ending up with the Holy Land, as we saw the structure of the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 38. In that book, published in 1854, Russia Triumphant and Europe Chained, John Thomas wrote this as a conclusion arising out of Daniel's prophecy. He wrote, their leaders, and he's talking about the leaders of Britain and France here, 
their leaders are all wrong in supposing that the age of conquest is past forever and that they will succeed in establishing the freedom and independence of Europe. There never has been such an age of conquest as that which will soon open upon the world. And as to the establishment of European freedom and independence, the war to be initiated is the setting in of an overwhelming inundation that will submerge them under one of the most terrible and scorching despotisms that ever wrung the heart of nations. Frightening stuff. Today, ladies and gentlemen, the situation is a serious one. I read to you from some of the news clippings that we've been looking at over the last few days. Friday, August the 8th, Reuters quoting the President of Georgia. If the whole world does not stop Russia today, then Russian tanks will be able to reach any other European capital. Russia triumphant. Europe chained. Tuesday, August the 12th, the Jerusalem Post. Russia is described as an imperialist aggressor. I.e. it's building an empire. Monday, August the 11th, the BBC. Diplomats talk in the darkest terms of a possible return to tensions the like of which Europe has not seen since World War II. I remember World War II. It's not a very welcome thought. Tuesday, August the 12th, the Daily Telegraph. Headline, Russia annexes a fifth of Georgia. And by the recent news, as I left home this evening, they're not finished yet. Also, the weakness that has been shown by the United States and the West has its consequences. A headline in the Jerusalem Post today read, and those of you who understand prophecy, swallow this one. Turkey's abandonment of the West. That is highly significant if we understand Turkey, the old Byzantine Empire, the Greek part, abandoning the West, it says. Some of you will know the significance of that. It seems that Russian plans and ambitions have been in place for a long time. We could go back to the will of Peter the Great, way back in history. But more recently than that, this was Stalin's blueprint for war. Joseph Stalin, who, by the way, came from Georgia. First, take Western Europe. Second, the Middle East and Northern Africa. And thirdly, move into China and Asia. The prophecy directs our attention to a particular thrust down onto the Middle East. In Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 8, we read the words that in the latter years, you, Gog, Prince of Rosh, you will come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Ezekiel then foresaw a thrust down into the Middle East, and he was talking about this 2,600 years ago. Much of what Ezekiel saw has already come to pass. We've already seen a restoration of the Jews back to that land. And again, in chapter 39 of, the, of, of Ezekiel's prophecy, we, we read this. I will cause you to come up from the north parts and will bring you upon the mountains of Israel. And you will fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your bands, and the people that are with you. He will be targeting the West Bank, because that is the mountains of Israel. That's where they are. Some very significant words were written on the basis of these prophecies 
in a book entitled Elpis Israel. It's actually in the preface of Elpis Israel. And what John Thomas had to say on this occasion was this. That the future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. The Russian autocracy in its plenitude and on the verge of dissolution is the image of Nebuchadnezzar. You see how he puts those two prophecies together. Daniel chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 38. That's, the, that's a good study to engage in, to look at those two. But he continues, When Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, then let the reader know that the end of all things as at present constituted is at hand. Does that impact upon us? When Russia makes its grand move for the building of its empire, then know that the end of all things, as they are now, is coming to an end. This has to affect us, friends. This must have an impact upon us. We're there. We are on the spot, as it were. And these prophecies are coming to pass he goes on to say the long expected but stealthy advent of the king of Israel will be on the eve of becoming a fact and today friends the long expected but stealthy advent of the king of Israel the messiah of Israel is on the very eve of becoming a fact. He is going to come. And he is going to deal with not only that situation, but he's also going to deal with you and me. For as that passage goes on to say, salvation will be to those who not only looked for it, but have trimmed their lamps by believing the gospel of the kingdom, unto the obedience of faith and the perfection thereof in fruits meet for repentance. If we are wise, we will take serious note of these things. Remember the wise and foolish virgins, those of you who know that parable? Now is the time to make sure of what we believe and that what we believe is the truth and not a substitution for it. We must believe and we must obey. Let's not mis make any mistakes here. We can't fool ourselves into imagining that Christ will accept disobedient people. He won't. Ezekiel chapter 38. We've seen what it talks about. It talks about the Russian power coming down upon the mountains of Israel, penetrating right into the Middle East. The Jerusalem Post, August the 10th, 2008. After coming to the rescue of Russian citizens in South Ossetia, Moscow may demand the repatriation of its people from the Ukraine, along with their land. In respect to Israel too, Russian leaders often proclaim a special relationship based on hundreds of thousands of Russian people who reside here. This may still be over the horizon, but you read it here first. Someday a representative delegation of these Russians may invoke the Ossetian precedent to appeal for protection from Moscow. With a large part of the Russian fleet moved by then from Sevastopol in the Crimea to Tartus, Syria, such an intervention may be at least as feasible as it was in 1967. So when a journalist writes about these things and analyzes it and sees the possibility that Russia could come down into Israel, friends, Ezekiel chapter 38 becomes alive. It's there. And it's things for which Christadelphians have looked 
over many, many years. Ezekiel 38 verse 7 tells Russia, Be thou prepared, and prepare for thyself. There's a question there for us, isn't there? If Russia is told to be prepared, what about me? What about you? Are we prepared? Do we believe the true gospel? And are we sure of that? And have we obeyed it as the Lord Jesus commanded? That you should obey it in baptism as our first work of faith. These are the things that are laid out before us. And apart from those things, there is no salvation. Because this power will come down into the Middle East, just like the prophecy has said. It shall come to pass at that same time, says Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 18 and 19. It shall come to pass at that same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. God is angry. That's what that's telling us. He's angry at the wickedness of this world. He's angry that people should treat his people in the way that they will be doing at that time. Surely, he says, in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. And I want you to imagine those words as a reality. When these forces come down with all their tanks, with all their guns, and with all their equipment and their rockets and everything else that they've got, and they come into the land and they occupy those mountains of Israel, and they're taking Jews off into captivity and so on and so forth, and they say, yeah, we've got these people out of here. The Bible's not true after all. And then the ground starts to shake. And there's a rumbling. And then it starts to rain. And that rain turns into hail. And mingled with that hail, there is fire. How? Probably meteorite. I don't know how. But it all starts to happen. Friends, when that situation develops, those soldiers will panic. People in the world know about these things in a vague sort of a way. They know that the Jewish people are God's chosen people in a vague sort of a way. And when these things happen and the rumbling starts, there will be a panic set in. And as Ezekiel's prophecy goes on to tell us, they'll start striking out at one another. Every man's sword shall be against his brother, it says. And so there will be a great destruction of human power upon the mountains of Israel in that particular time. This is the fact that we face. And, you know, those of us who do our daily Bible readings, uh, we've been reading today, in fact, of a time when Babylon came against Jerusalem. And people saw this, and so they thought, we better, we better, re we better repent, we better, we better get things in order. And so they let their servants go free, and they proclaimed ca uh, liberty to, to, to their servants and to their slaves and, and people like that. And then for some reason, Babylon withdrew a little bit. He had some other business to attend to. So people started to say, oh, it's not going to happen now. It's, you know, get the servants back, get the slaves back in again. And they did. Don't let us be like that. We see these things happen. We know we've got to change our life. We know we've got to change things. But as things may quieten down, if they do, I'm not saying they will, I'm not saying they won't, but if they do, don't just push it on one side and say, oh, the vision that he sees is for many days to come yet. It ain't going to happen just yet. We've got to take a hold of ourselves. We've got to get our life into shape. And we've got to do everything that we can to develop that obedient spirit before the Lord God who made us. 
Well, it could get more serious yet. As I left, I ran off the latest news headlines. Russia challenges George Bush as, a, as it advances through Georgia. The United States is under notice. Russia is actually baiting the United States. The Daily Telegraph site. The Ukraine imposes restrictions on Russia's navy. That's a rather courageous thing for them to do, isn't it? Reasserting control over its near neighbours is at the heart of Russia's foreign policy, says the article. And it goes on to say about the Baltic states and the Ukraine. Independence is still seen as something fragile and not necessarily built to last. Everyone knows that the next one could be the Ukraine, then Poland. And when we look at this headline in the Jerusalem Post, this is just an hour old. Lavrov, he's the Russian foreign minister. The United States must choose between Russia and Georgia. What are you going to do, Mr. Bush? Do you want us as your friends? Help you solve Iran problems and things like that? Or are you going to stand by Georgia? He's putting the United States into quite a jam. And it remains to be seen in the immediate what will happen. But in the long term, we do know what will happen. And I come back to that question. Are we prepared? Are we prepared, friends? You see, these, these things are not just something that we can sort of take on the side. We've got, we've got to be diligent in making this the focus of our whole existence. It isn't just some side issue. We've got to get our whole life in gear so that we can develop, as I say, that obedient spirit in learning what it is the Lord wants us to do and then getting about so as to do it. Thank you very much for your attention and we hope to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of the Bible in the News. Tune in next week as we continue to monitor events in Georgia, the Middle East, and around the world in light of Bible prophecy. Tune in to www.bibleinthenews.com or www.biblemagazine.com. <laughs>